Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Well, we're back with part two of Plastic Surgery Decoded's two-part series on breast reconstruction. You may have already listened to part one, where we discussed implant-based reconstruction of the breast after removal for cancer, and that was episode number 70 of the podcast. But in this episode number 71, we're discussing the other main type of breast reconstruction, which is flap-based, F-L-A-P, or in other words, using the body's own tissues to make a new breast. Sounds intriguing, huh? How can you actually do that? And what's a flap anyway? By the way, if you're interested in some good basic information about breast reconstruction, pop back to episode number 21 for a nice review. But a flap is essentially a segment of layered tissue, usually skin and fat, with or without underlying attached muscle. So reconstruction with a flap involves moving flesh or tissue from another part of the body into the breast cavity where the breast used to be, bringing the volume and fullness needed to make a new breast. Now, in order to survive in its new position, a flap either maintains its own blood supply, where a portion of it is still connected to the body if it's close enough, in which case it's called a pedicle flap, or the surgeon has to reconnect it to a new blood supply if it's been taken from farther away on the body, and then it's called a free flap. Free meaning it was separated from the body at one point and then reattached. A microscope has to be used to sew the small arteries and veins together, in order to start the blood flow back into the flap. As you can imagine, it's a more complicated procedure, but can be quite rewarding when it goes well. Now examples of a free flap include transferring layered tissue from the abdomen, the hip, the buttock, and even the inner thigh. You may have heard of the deep flap, and that's D-I-E-P, which stands for Deep Inferior Epigastric Perforator. It comes from the abdomen, but its components are only skin and fat, so it doesn't sacrifice muscle like a tram flap does. It has become a popular choice for breast reconstruction. And speaking of, today we have with us a pioneer of the deep flap, Dr. Robert Allen in New Orleans, discussing the benefits of flap-based breast reconstruction and many of the nuances as well. Take a listen to what he has to say. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome Dr. Robert Allen, who's going to talk with us today about flap-based breast reconstruction. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Good to be here, Regina. Very good. 
You know, first of all, you are well known for your skills at reconstructing a breast after removal for cancer, known as a mastectomy. Is this the majority of patients you treat in your practice? It is 100% of the patients that treat and um, has been for, you know, since probably the mid-1990s. So it's almost like a subspecialty of plastic surgery that consists of autogenous breast reconstruction. Meaning using the body's own tissues. Yes. Yeah. And how did you become interested in this type of plastic surgery, and what do you enjoy about it? From the beginning, I was always very interested in reconstructive microsurgery, microvascular mm-hmm. surgery. Mm-hmm. Working under a microscope. And yeah, so that was just getting started when I yeah. was a resident, and most of the cases back in the early 80s were extremity reconstruction. Yeah, arms and legs. Mostly traumatic defects, and then head and neck and so forth, and very, very, yeah. very little breast reconstruction Got it. with microsurgery. And so I uh, had that strong interest, and my first years in practice, I was doing uh, you know, primarily extremity reconstruction, a lot of hand surgery, and, and um, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, Oh, gosh, uh, in so 1988, my father was a surgeon, uh-huh. and he and and I'm from South Carolina, even though I was practicing in New Orleans. Yes. And uh, he told her she needed a mastectomy, and she said that she didn't want to lose her breast, or if she did, mm-hmm. she wanted reconstruction. And so they came out to New Orleans, and she had had a lumpectomy at positive margins and. Uh, so I, w- I basically had to put together the team for the reconstruction, and the plan was to do a re-excision by the breast surgeon, and if the margins were clear, then uh, we would proceed with reconstruction. And probably was going to do a pedicle tram reconstruction. I really felt like that was not a good operation for my mother who was very, very active and liked to be biking and hiking and swimming and dancing. Because and it, it requires harvesting of a muscle. The muscle sacrifice. And then I didn't think that implant reconstruction was going to be uh, the answer in mm-hmm. her case, or it certainly had shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I really think that's what got me thinking. Here's a field where there's not many good options, not many options, and the options are out there, either implants or muscle flaps. Mm-hmm. And so if I applied my microsurgical interest and expertise, maybe I could come up with something better. And so it's good the inspiration right there. Uh, first thing I thought about was using tissue from the lower abdomen based on the superficial system, superficial mm-hmm. inferior pagastric artery and vein, which... Interestingly, that flap had been described or published in 1864. Oh, my goodness. The SIA flap. And it was as a pedicle flap for a burn scar contracture of the hand. And But anyway, the flap had been around, and people had used it as a free flap. And, and the first free flap in the world, which was done in, in Australia, which was the groin flap, uh, most people th- assume that was the superficial circumflex iliac flap, but it was really a SIA mm-hmm. flap. That's the artery that supplies it. Yes, yeah. yes. So the flap had been around, but it hadn't been used for breast reconstruction. 
and I was doing a fair amount of abdominal plasties as a young plastic surgeon, and so I would leave the superficial system attached and do the abdominal plasty and, and note the perfusion, and then I would harvest it, and I would inject either methylene blue to see the territory, or I would put radio-opaque dye and order an x-ray. Mm-hmm. So you're talking, just for the listeners, you're talking about putting a special dye in and watching where it travels so you can get information about blood supply. Right, right. And so I, I'd convinced myself that to use the uh, transverse abdominoplasty design that Dr. Hartramp in Atlanta had popularized with the tram flap, uh, would be uh, a way to use that s- similar tissue without uh, muscle sacrifice. And the first case at Charity Hospital in New Orleans was a big success. And um, But the anatomy is quite variable. You can't really predict where it's going to go. You can't yeah. do it on every patient. And so after uh, seven cases, uh, I had had three failures. And so that was really you know, too high. Discouraging. Discouraging. The, the, the submission to PRS got turned down. Yeah, that's the Plastic Surgery Journal. Yes, and uh, it was funny. They they said, we already have the tram flap. We don't need another operation from the lower abdomen, you know, in retrospect. Yeah. Let me take just a minute, and I think the listeners will appreciate this. Could you explain what flap surgery is? Sure. Uh, just to to begin with, and then the different types, you know, pedicle versus um, um, free flap, and then, you know, muscle versus perforator, that kind of thing. Well, I think in in the broadest sense that plastic surgeons do grafts and flaps, and that's pretty much Mm -hmm. what we do. And so... To provide soft tissue coverage to other areas that need it. exactly. To address the the, um, reconstructive problems that are out there. Yeah. And so a graft, it depends on the blood supply of where you're placing it, like a skin graft for a, a burn or something, whereas a flap uh, brings its own blood supply. Ah, yes. And it's probably where the word comes from, because a flap could be like flapping in the air. Yeah. Uh, or flapping on the clothesline or something. Yeah, right. And so it's still attached, and so when you rotate it or advance it, then later you can divide it when new blood vessels grow in from where you placed it. Uh, But the nice thing about microsurgery is that uh, by uh, teasing out the blood vessels that are keeping it alive and dividing them and then reattaching them in the recipient area, the area that you're reconstructing, such as a breast. So then it's called a free flap because it's cut free and then reattached. And yeah. so gives you a lot more freedom, too, in terms of where you can take it from and where you can put it. Yeah, so it, it was a major uh, leap forward when, uh, beginning in the early 1970s, it was shown you could transfer areas of the body microsurgically, and you could be more selective also in terms of um, what tissue you would need. And so for most reconstructive problems, uh, definitely including the breast reconstruction. You primarily need fat and skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we need less skin or no skin if, if patients have skin-sparing, nipple-sparing mastectomies, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. So it really opened up the possibilities. And so a field like breast reconstruction 
really has benefited tremendously from the flaps from the, not only just the lower abdomen but other donor sites such as the back or the thighs mm-hmm. or the buttock. Literally anywhere on the body we've got excess tissue, you can move it. Make a flap out of it. By knowing what blood supply is there. And a- another surprising thing of sorts, because a lot of people look on microsurgery as being a uh, big operation and very complex and difficult. Uh, but when you use microsurgery to transfer the tissue around, it's got the highest success rate of any way to move tissue around. So highest survival rate, yeah. Yeah, the survival rate is the highest rather than just a local flap or even grafts and other things. And so uh, with that tool, as a, as a plastic surgeon going in knowing that we have something to offer with the highest success rate out there, it brings tremendous advantages in terms of sparing muscles and picking the donor site depending on the particular patient's uh, availability and their needs. So it's really led to a, a, a tremendous increase in options that are available. What do you think are, just generally, as we compare implant breast reconstruction versus flap reconstruction of the breast, what do you think of the pros and cons? Well, the permanence and the quality of using your own tissue for reconstruction is much better than implants. And I, and I think most all plastic surgeons agree with that. So in that sense, it becomes top of the line or the really the best quality. And so then... The concerns are, well, how long does it take, and what's the failure rate, the complication rate, and what type of donor site scars that you would have as opposed to just opening a box and putting an implant. And so it's, there's no question that a, a implant reconstruction is a simpler operation and you don't have a donor site. Uh, but with uh, using your own tissue, once you get it done, it's rare to ever have to do any revisions or anything with implants. They always tell you that most likely that you will need further revision surgery down the road for either uh, scar uh, tissue or infections or Mm -hmm. uh, deflation or whatever. And then as we talk about flap reconstruction of the breast, what these days, what area is most commonly selected for flap harvest and what flap is the most common? The ideal donor site in the uh, Paris female lies transversely across the lower abdomen. Mm-hmm. That sounds a little poetic. So we all have a little excess there we'd like to get rid of. So, Yes, yeah, so if a woman's had pregnancies, then the tissue is stretched out. But even the fact that the lower abdomen is designed so that it can stretch out for pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And so to take enough tissue to make a breast, you can spare that on on the majority of people. And if a person's abdomen had some of the ravages of multiple pregnancies that could be improved with a tummy tuck, then sure. you know, we, we use those same principles and, and uh, we can make an improvement of the abdomen. And instead of discarding that tissue, we can use that tissue to reconstruct a natural breast that's warm and sensate. and mm-hmm. So you can feel, yeah. Changes with weight gain and weight loss and so forth. Yeah, that's a great point. So that's really the ideal. And so all my efforts are to, to use the lower abdomen if at all possible. Mm-hmm. And so 
That's most of them. But if, if a person had had, say, a previous tummy tuck, mm-hmm. then you, we can't use the low abdomen. Mm-hmm. And there are various other things. And the body build is different on some people. Their body fat is distributed more mm-hmm. pear-shaped than, say, apple-shaped. What are some other areas you could harvest tissue from for a free flap? Well, from the back was first described way back in, like, 1905 by Tanzini using the latissimus muscle mm-hmm. with overlying skin and fat to rotate it, particularly at the time they were doing radical mastectomies. Mm-hmm. And so that would be to fill in the defect as opposed to, say, a skin graft on top of the ribs right. for about a soft tissue coverage. But then that was kind of rediscovered in around 1975 for modern breast reconstruction, typically coupled with an implant. And... The early results were were quite good, mm-hmm. and uh, but over time, the implants would assert themselves with capsule contracture and the asymmetry, and yeah. and so once that was starting to becoming more obvious, then the uh, pedicle tram flap was introduced uh, about five years later after the latissimus. So all of a sudden. Every plastic surgeon in the world was interested in learning how to do that. Yeah, and that's from the lower abdomen, yeah. Yes, and so that kind of replaced the latissimus. For a while, the, the latissimus dropped way off. And then as time went on, it became more obvious about the functional loss as well as the instance of hernia from oh, the sure. abdomen. Yeah. And so as those problems started coming up, the pendulum maybe on the one hand, swung more back toward the latissimus. Um, And the latissimus is still around and still used by a lot of plastic surgeons. Uh, But uh, the next kind of wave was what what we call like the perforator flaps, which are uh, muscle sparing, where you take only the skin and fat, and it's based on these blood vessels that perforate up through the muscle or around the muscles. So you can leave the muscle in place. That's great. For function. Yeah, yeah, and so with the back basing it on artery perforators, uh, you could leave the muscle completely. And so lately, past couple of years, I've been using, been reexamining that as a donor area, ah. but combining it with a surgical delay procedure where before you could, you could not take enough to make a total breast reconstruction mm-hmm. very reliably. You could do it occasionally, but by doing a surgical delay, and we're doing a delay just one day ahead of time. Do a delay, they stay overnight, and then you can transfer enough tissue, and many people, if they've got the tissue on the, on the back, and rotate around. So the know. delay, basically you're, you're trimming away some of it and giving it a chance to compensate and recruit blood supply from uh, other areas, if you will, and then you can finish the procedure uh, with more reliability of it surviving. A lot more. You can literally double the survival length and survival volume by doing a surgical delay where you leave two sets of blood supplies initially. Each can cover half of it, approximately and distally, and then when the connections between the blood vessel, the, the perforators and so forth, opens up and the blood vessels get larger than you can divide one in and carry everything. Sir Howard Gillies, after World War One and during World War One, started doing a lot of that type of surgery. Yeah, it's a great technique. But to combine it with microsurgery 
is just another way to address problems. Yeah. And then the thigh is a good donor area. The inner thigh, the posterior thigh, and uh, I described that in uh, 2010. And it was interesting because at the time I was pretty much full-time at NYU, and they were using the gracilis muscle with overland skin and fat, the tug flap. But I was thinking, we got to figure out some way to avoid the muscle, because what if someone's a ballerina and they need that graceful muscle and so forth? Absolutely. But anyway, I was invited to a meeting in Mexico where they wanted me to operate on a lady, and uh, she had, had had failed abdominal tram and failed implants and radiation. And so I said, well, can I try something different? And so I based that on a perforate off the profunda vessels. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, worked very well. So that's become a very popular second choice, you know, I think worldwide. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, the buttock is an area where there's thicker fat. Mm-hmm. And um, that was first described back in the 70s to take the underlying muscle, gluteus maximus, uh, which is a big, thick muscle. And, but it had difficulties with it. And I knew it could be improved if it were converted Without the muscle, you'd have longer blood vessels, so it'd be a little easier. But the anatomy and so forth, it's still a difficult procedure and hasn't gained a lot of widespread acceptance. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you get an ellipse of tissue from the buttock, it's often difficult to shape it as well as if you had, say, tissue from the oh, abdomen. Oh, yes, yeah. Less flexible. And yeah. then if you take too much, then the buttock has a scooped out area yeah, so yeah, that's no good. Uh, it still is, a, is an option but it's you know, it's not that commonly used um, uh, and then the lateral thigh uh, I described where you could take tissue from the saddlebag area yes. uh, based on uh, blood vessels that supply the tense fascia out of muscle but they always have a nice septocutaneous vessel going just into the skin and fat you can take recently where we needed more volume we've combined the pap flap from the posterior medial thigh with the lateral thigh perforated flap. And then, so it was one donor site, one scar that curved around in the in the infragluteal crease, but it was enough to make a nice full breast. Combination is a great idea. Well, who is a good candidate for flap-based breast reconstruction? Does the type of planned mastectomy play a part or the shape or size of the original breast? Well, most anyone is a candidate for reconstruction with their own tissue. So we have so many different options to choose from. And certainly if a person was a cigarette smoker, you know, we all plastic surgeons know that that affects the blood supply Absolutely. and the healing. And mm-hmm. so, but I mean, even for like implant reconstruction, you would want people off smoking or facelift or anything. Yeah. Um, and um, so... In my career, it's been very, very, very unusual that there's nothing to offer. And so, um, I mean, sometimes I'll see somebody that say, well, uh, it sounds like a lot of doing, and I've got kids, and i got to get back to work. And, and I'll say, well, if you have implant reconstruction and it works out, you know, that's fine. But if it doesn't work out, you could always do this later if it didn't yeah. work out to your satisfaction. That's a good point. And so sometimes they'll go that route. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had only like one patient I can really remember that 
I just said, I have nothing to offer. Oh. And it was a professional body weightlifter mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And whenever they would show for, for contests and everything, they would get their body fat down so low there was no body fat. Oh, yeah. The patient had had a mastectomy. And previously she'd had breast implants, augmentation. And then she had a mastectomy and an implant and radiation and, and had problems with that. But there was just, there was no place to try to get enough for, you know, to match the implanted opposite breast that I could think of. She said between when she would show at events, she would get body fat. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so I think almost, you know, close to 100% of people there, they could be candidates. And obviously if a person has uh, health issues that you don't want to stress them with a bigger operation. Sure, sure, sure. The elderly people, you know, over the age of 70, there are more risk factors with having uh, major flap surgery versus implant reconstruction. Uh, obesity, as we see more and more, is a common uh, finding among all people. And so if they're presenting with a very high weight and body mass BMI, mm-hmm. body mass index, then mm-hmm. their complication rate goes up sure. significantly. and I've been able to talk people like that into losing weight, either with oh, bariatric yeah. procedures and, and... Make them a better candidate, yeah. And they get motivated to do that, then it makes them a candidate to use their own tissue. And it, it, and their health is better because they've taken the weight off. So. That's wonderful. Same with smoking. If you can talk them to quitting smoking to get what they want, you've done a big help for their health as well. Well, what about uh, complications or what we call flap failure, where it just does not survive? Uh, what's the next step? And have you ever had to convert a flap to an implant-based reconstruction? Or actually vice versa is probably a little more common for you, right? Well, a lot more common. But <laughs> yeah. when a person has a failure, as said, fortunately, uh, free flap breast reconstruction, it, the success rate of the flap survival should be well over 95%. And, but that's still, I mean, if, you, if you've got a 3% chance of failure and you, and you do 100 patients, three of them are going to fail. Yeah. And so it happens. And you know, when it happens, then the patient is upset, the surgeon's upset, everybody's upset. Sure, and they went through this and, and it didn't work out. And so then at that point, uh, their options are uh, to do nothing uh, or to have consider implant reconstruction or to consider another flap. And in my experience, almost nobody just says, I decided to live without a breast. I can just be flat. I mean, once they've made that decision for reconstruction, the vast majority of them, they don't want to stop. Yeah. And so there often are, are very, very good alternative flaps that can be done if they'd had a failure from the abdomen with, say, the DAP, and you use tissue from the posterior thigh or something. You can use the tissue from the back, the buttocks. So we have a lot of backup plans, and you can use combining it with some fat grafting, Mm -hmm. liposuction and fat grafting. I mean, I'm known for somebody that just specializes in flap reconstruction. Yes. I don't do implant reconstruction, although, you know, I know lots of plastic surgeons who are excellent Mm -hmm. at it. So 
uh, people know that, and so when they come to me, they know that I'm going to think about what's a good option for them, and usually can come up with something, yeah. you know, something quite good. Uh, as far as the other side, where you said, well, how often does the implant people convert to autogenous? In my experience, I have probably over a thousand breast reconstructions that I've done that they first had implant reconstruction didn't work out. Wow. But it's it's been kind of steady during most of my career where approximately 15 to 20% of my patients had had previous implant reconstruction that didn't work out for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And we've published on it. And a lot of times when you have residents and fellows that are gathering data and looking it up, it surprises you know the attending who've been doing the surgeries about what was really the motivating factor. And probably the most common person that had first implant reconstruction and went to using their own tissue, the results were often, quote, not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. And they had the reconstruction and they just didn't like it. They were they were, you know, it was it was uncomfortable, it never felt natural. Yeah. Uh, the breast felt colder than normal. Oh, sure. And a lot of times they would see the surgeon that they, they put the implants in, who was usually a very nice person that they thought a lot of, and, and the plant surgeon would say, well, your result really is quite acceptable and blah, 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 but if it really bothers the patient, uh, it's it's really nice to know there are options. Yes. So, you know, when they come to That's me, exactly right. um, then I say, well, you know, I, I, you know, you wouldn't be here if they weren't really bothering you. And, and you do have options. We could take them out and use your own tissue. That's great. And um, now, of course, there are situations. And one patient comes to mind, a uh, very attractive uh, patient, uh, probably in their 40s, and was in very good health. And at some point, it had a tummy tuck, and she had breast cancer. And she had a, a uh, mastectomy and an implant reconstruction. And she had gotten radiation somewhere along the line, but she ended up with a bad infection around the implant. Uh And she ended up getting admitted to the hospital, and then she kept getting sicker, and she was in the intensive care unit. She was, like, very, very healthy. And uh, they were trying all types of antibiotics and various things. And uh, the husband, who I think was an attorney or something, was he was like, well, why don't they just take the implant out? (laughs) But anyway, they took the implant out, and she got well, and her kidneys started working better and on and on. Um, and then she, with the previous tummy tuck and so forth, she was fairly thin. Uh, she had had a, a, a augmentation, I think, on the opposite breast. So it was a fairly large uh, breast for her body. Yeah. And she'd ask around about different things, and people said, well, it's a difficult situation and so forth. And, and so finally somebody said, well, you know, you could go see... Uh, Bob Allen, because you know he does. He also can take tissue from the buttock, stuff like that that we don't really do very much. Uh, yeah. He's got more options. Yeah. So <laughs> she's out of state. She came and and she said, "Well, you know, I'm here to see you, but I've decided if you don't have anything to offer, that's it. I'm not. I'm just going to accept it. I'm not going to pursue it. So, you know, you're the last stop." Ooh, the pressure's on. <laughs> and I looked at her and then I said. Well, I have a procedure for you that is just 
I think it's, it's perfect. It's a wonderful procedure for you. I think you're going to like it a lot. And I think your results are going to be outstanding. And so I don't know if she believed me that much or not. But, uh, but so in her case, I did two small flaps from the upper part of the buttock so as not to mess the buttock up. And she had like the bikini. She was a bikini wearer and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but by taking two... Then the donor site was fine. I mean, it was just could take you could get away with it without noticing it, and the scar was concealed in the bikini. Yeah, and be pretty even too. Yeah. And putting the two together, it made a beautiful breast. It it kind of looked like an implant reconstruction. Oh my gosh! Because there are two of these uh, hemispheres put together, and and so. That was the answer. That's great. It was the answer, yeah. and she had, you know, very very little pain post-op. And it, much less than, say, a DAP from the abdomen, yeah. <laughs> these two small flaps from the upper buttock. And she literally, her girlfriend had come with her. Her husband was busy working. And so two days after surgery, it was in New Orleans. So she and her girlfriend were, like, in the French Quarter, shopping, playing oh tourist or anything. I mean, she just felt she felt great. She looked great. Changed her life. So for being somebody that was at her wit's end. Yeah. So some of my best patients are often people who had failed implant reconstruction. Well, let me ask you this. I'm just curious your thoughts. What do you think might be coming in the future to improve breast reconstruction? Or is there anything you would especially like to see, even, even if it weren't possible today? Well, I'd like to see breast cancer eradicate. <laughs> hey, wouldn't that be great? And then just eliminate yeah, the problem. Yeah, so they won't. So people won't, won't need mastectomies yeah. or see the treatment so good that they don't need mastectomies. Yes. You know, for a long time, the trend in breast cancer treatment was doing less and less lumpectomies instead of mastectomies. And, yeah. Uh, you know, they started off with radical mastectomies. Right. Very aggressive. Taking the muscles and all the skin. Uh, but more recently, in the past 20 years, has evolved more toward like nipple sparing. And that means keeping the nipple. And so you just take the gland out. Yes. And that's a huge advance in terms of the quality of the final outcome. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I feel like that, say, if a person is a candidate for nipple sparing, which most people are, mm -hmm. uh, but particularly if somebody has a um, genetic mutation, it puts them at high risk, such as the BRCA1 or 2, uh, all those will be candidates for nipple sparing. And so the mastectomies are typically done by the breast surgeons. And it varies. You know, some breast surgeons don't do nipple sparing or they're not very good at it because if you have to leave enough blood supply for the nipple to survive, or you know, sure. then that doesn't work. And so I really feel that 50% of the result depends on the breast surgeon. Ah, yes. And so if you have yeah. a breast surgeon that preserves the sure. the uh, internal mammary perforators medially, that supply the nipple area with blood supply and nerve supply. Mm -hmm. Sensation, yeah. Um, that, that it makes a huge difference. And um, so that's critical. And so with that, uh, often everything's done through an inframammary incision. We're moving more and more to doing one-stage reconstruction where they have the nipple-sparing mastectomy and we take the tissue from, say, the lower abdomen or wherever, and then we will uh, 
we call it burying the flap. So we'll take all the skin off, and it's just the fat with the good blood supply and the blood vessels. Just refilling the skin envelope with the breast, yeah. Refilling the skin envelope and then closing it. And so at the end of the operation, it doesn't look like they've had anything done. Pretty amazing. And we try to make the tummy tuck look real good. No dog ears on the ends, nice belly button, a low scar. Get everything done in one operation, they're done. That's ideal. They're good for life. Well, I want to thank you for taking some time with us today and helping explain the concept of flap reconstruction for the breast and talking about the options and a little bit of the history. It was so interesting. And the fact that we got to speak with Dr. Bob Allen, the pioneer of the deep and other flaps, uh, was just an absolute treat. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Regina. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.